Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to this new episode of FEPS Talks. I'm David Rinaldi, Director for Studies and Policies at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, and I'm extremely glad to welcome us today, Professor Stephanie Griffith-Jones. Uh, welcome to FEPS Talks. Stephanie is frequently at FEPS because we pick her brain every now and then in our scientific council, but uh, your main role is perhaps at the Columbia University at the Initiative for Policy Dialogue, where you direct uh, the financial markets program. Uh, you are also Emeritus Professorial Fellow at the Institute of uh, Development Studies at Sussex University and Non-Resident Fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington and uh, many other activities uh, with uh, you know, Climate Works Foundation, uh, Masarykova Academy Foundation. Uh, we are extremely glad that you took the time to join us today, mostly to speak about important topics that I would summarize as uh, the buzzword of the year. There is not recovery. It's one of the things that compose the recovery. It is the investment. You have uh, written an extensive number of papers on the role of national promotional banks, public banks for investment. So uh, my very first question to you is why do we need investment now and why public-led initiatives? Well, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation. It's always a special pleasure to be talking to you, David, and to Fed. I think that's a very central question. Investment, if, if we want to have a major structural transformation, like we want to move towards a fairer and greener economy in the EU, but also worldwide, to achieve such structural transformation, we need major levels of investment. And this kind of investment is quite risky. So often the private sector doesn't want to finance this investment, particularly if it's very long term, because it doesn't want to face this uncertainty. And therefore, a key role is often needs to be played by the public sector, which will assume a more long-term perspective and will be willing to take larger risks. And this is true also, of course, for the pandemic, where we need quick recovery and we need investment to encourage aggregate demand as well as long-term recovery of supply, but for the recovering better as everybody says. Recovering better and addressing the structural transformation. This is uh, extremely important. As you know, as part of the recovery plan, uh, Europe has uh, committed uh, already quite uh, a large amount, at least for what is uh, the common European budget. And then, uh, so the new multi-annual financial framework has been launched and the next generation EU. But as you said, it's not only a matter of the amount, it's also a matter of how this is playing out. Uh, so my, my question to you is uh, maybe more in line with what you have recently contributed to FEPS. You published with us a nice policy study on the role of the EAB, mostly for the climate and ecological transition. It is actually one of those institu European, European institutions that, uh, is, that is not under the spotlight in this very moment, because the recovery is mostly in the hands, if you want, commission and member states. But there's a big chance of investment that is uh, can be made available via the European Investment Bank. So it has already been changing over time. 
How do you see the role of this important player changing and adapting to the new situation? I think in the EU, we're very lucky to have an institution like the European Investment Bank, which is really in many ways at the heart of the European Union. It was, in fact, created at the same time as the Treaty of Rome. So it's been there right from the beginning of the establishment of the common market. And it has, I think, successfully adjusted to new challenges. And now the major challenge are COVID and the major structural transformation, as we said before. And in this very large need for resources, there's talk from at least 300 billion euros a year, perhaps more, to achieve the major reduction on greenhouse gases that, that you mentioned, David, which the EU now wants to reduce at least 55%. So you need to finance a lot of investment. And the European Investment Bank has gone on a sort of new track. It's been now called the Climate Bank. And that means that it's committed by 2025, which is almost tomorrow, to have half of its lending as going towards a green-related project. And the rest of its lending, also very important, also fully aligned with the Paris Agreement. So it has a very ambitious motivation and it has a sort of roadmap to do that. And it's in some sectors extremely ambitious. For example, already uh, the EU has said that it will not invest in any airport expansion, only improvements of exports, but it will not finance new airports or expand existing ones. And I think that's very important because aviation is one of the sectors while there is not a cleaner fuel for airplanes, which is very important. And uh, it's also giving a very important support for electromobility of cars and also for uh, new forms, for example, renewable energy. It's funding research on green hydrogen, which is perhaps one of the most dynamic sources for green energy. So it's playing quite a big role. But in fact, I think because it's called on to do such a big role, both for COVID recovery and for this structural transformation, personally, I think that the capital of the paid in capital of this European Investment Bank should be increased by the member states, as it was in 2012, in the aftermath of the Eurozone debt crisis, as you know, and it was doubled and that facilitated an expansion of the EIB. And so I think that and giving more resources for guarantees and so on would allow the EU, the EIB to deploy its resources at a larger scale. And then, of course, there are things to do by the EIB. For example, it works a lot with national development banks, which is very good, and they can be encouraged also to lend in a green and just way. But also, it often lends through commercial banks. And I think it's very important that more progress is made in how the money channeled through the private financial sector and with the financial sector can also have this directionality going towards the green and just transformation. So I think that's one of the outstanding challenges that remain. Perhaps before I finish answering the question, I would like to just mention that the EIB has done really important things, also in terms of the pandemic, because it funded uh, BioNTech, the German firm. It, it provided a guarantee together with the commission. And so the first vaccine that was at least approved in this country and that is broadly seen as very good was actually funded uh, through 
the European the research was funded through the European Investment Bank and through the German government and the Commission. So we we can see this idea that public banks can produce public goods. It couldn't be better illustrated. I mean, I'm a big fan because I myself had a Pfizer vaccine, so I like it. Very good. It's a great contribution. I understand the two important policy recommendations that you just gave us that I would like to underline. First, inject uh, more capital into the EIB as it was done uh, after the previous crisis. And secondly, use the funds that the EIB group via the EIB as well as the European International Fund are channeling through commercial bank and other type of funds. There's plenty of guarantees, mezzanine financing, equity that are provided that these should go towards uh, you know, a sort of a conditionality for the financial intermediaries that uh, needs to perform in terms of climate protection. But let me try to be a little bit of a, a devil advocate. I remember that one of the big you want criticism that the EIB received when she was trying to put forward uh, this new climate mission was that with some of its financing, it is still going to fossil fuel-related uh, uh, production. So we, we are happy that it's financing a lot of interesting uh, transformative projects, but how can we effectively decrease instead the, the financing of more old-fashioned energy production? And the other point is the interplay with national promotional banks. So up to which extent we can somehow rely, for instance, on the EIB in those countries where maybe where a national promotional bank is not really there, uh, or there are few countries that have very strong national promotional banks. I think about my own country, Italy, uh, Germany, Spain, France, many others in the, in the Eastern European countries. But not all countries have this, uh, you know, strategic public uh, national bank that is able to translate some of the policies and guarantees of the EIB for the national public good. How we can improve on this? Do we actually have to expand maybe the role of the EIB in certain member states or create a more uh, you know, public banking uh, where it's missing? How do you see the interplay with national uh, promotional banks and the EIB? I think those are two really good questions. On the first point, I think uh, several of the think tanks and NGOs that are very green, like Counterbalance and others, uh, have been pointing to some aspects where the green performance of the EIB could be improved. For example, the EIB still invests in expansion of roads. And the explanation that the EIB gives is that they are moving also to invest in electric cars. And once you have electric cars, it's not such a big problem. But some of these think tanks and NGOs argue that uh, this will take some time. And in the meantime, it would be better, for example, to support electric trains or other means that would not encourage increased carbon emission because of the climate emergency. So I think that there are complicated trade-offs and there are areas where the EIB could accelerate its transformation to green. But I think they've come quite a long way. And they play also a pioneering role in, in something like, for example, they have a shadow carbon pricing. So they're not reflecting the market price of carbon emissions, but they put a much higher price in their evaluation of projects. And therefore, they have a much stronger bias towards projects that are greener and a very strong bias against brown projects, if you like, and many of which they are beginning to forbid, for example, they have stopped funding at completely fossil fuels or are stopping next year. So I think that's very positive. But I think there is always 
uh, as Oscar Wilde says, room for improvement. Now, I, I think you're right that it's very important to strengthen, particularly in the poorer countries or in the former transition economies, the role of national development banks. Because both institutions like the EIB and national development banks have not only the advantage that we discussed of what we call policy steer in this paper with Natalia Nakwi that we wrote for FEBS, or you know, industrial policy, which is very valuable, but they also have the advantage of leverage, which means that Governments with a limited amount of funds can actually have bigger impact because they co-finance with the private sector. So in terms of what you should support more, whether the EIB should lend more directly or they should expand, support the expansion of the EU, should expand, uh, support the expansion of national development banks, I think where possible, it's always better to have more country ownership, as we say in developing countries, and because there's more country knowledge, there are less asymmetries of information if, if the local people do it. But where, for example, the, the development bank or the promotional bank, as it's called on the continent, is not so large or doesn't have enough expertise yet, then it may be better to allow greater flexibility either for national governments or the European Commission. I think what is positive that now in the EU, practically every country now has some kind of promotional bank. And therefore, I think it's a very important role for the EIB, as well as for the more established development banks, like the Italian one that you mentioned, like KFW, which is the classical effective development bank, to also help expand and improve uh, the creation and, and improvement of, of national development banks. I think that's really important. I remember discussing this with uh, our colleague and friend, Matthias Kolachanin, when he was vice president of the European Investment Bank. And he said that when they lend to a country, if it has a good development bank, and he gave the case of Turkey, because the EIB also lends out outside the EU, then the project is much better implemented, much easier for them to work with. So the strengthening of this national development bank counterparties is, I think, very important. Let me try a fundamental question on the role of national promotional banks, as well as on the role of the European financing as a whole. Uh, what we are mostly discussing in this moment, there's a big focus on the recovery. We are talking about the role of public finances for long-term investment, for uh, you know, future-proof investment, they call it. So to equip our society for, to manage the transitions, structural transformation, as you as you mentioned them. But at the same time, in time of times of crisis, when we really need a recovery, and we are in a sort of emergency as the one we we had so far, but as the one where we are quite sure that we will have in the near future with the many people laid off, many companies that we will force to close and shut down, is perhaps you know a, a public finances with a different objective that is not medium to long-term investment, but is more a counter-cyclical approach of public finances. How do you see the role of the EIB or national promotional banks? in these more specific and maybe short-term type of investments or counter-cyclical policies? Or how do you see the involvement of the EU more at large into this more stabilization function? Well, I think you pointed to a second very important function, 
I think the first is to fund structural transformation, but the other is precisely for governments and promotional banks to provide counter-cyclical finance, because when there is a crisis, either if it's a financial crisis or now it's a COVID crisis, private banks or private financial institutions, due to the high levels of uncertainty and risk, become very reluctant to lend, and particularly for long-term funding, but even for working capital. And therefore, companies and particular SMEs find it very difficult to find finance at a time when they're desperate for finance because their incomes are falling, their sales are falling, but they're trying to not fire workers to keep their workforce and therefore they have deficits. And the, the counter-cyclical role, which is to continue expanding lending, perhaps even more than before, uh, has been done really well, both by national development banks and also regional and multilateral development banks. For example, in the 2007-8 financial crisis, national development banks in two years increased, according to data of the World Bank, by 36% their lending, on average throughout the world. And the same thing has been done, for example, by institutions like the European Investment Bank and others, the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank. So this is absolutely a key role. And, and again, in COVID, there is, I think, a very rapid response. For example, the EIB has massively increased its lending to SMEs, and this has helped maintain or save jobs. But I think this has to be complemented by government uh, fiscal counter-cyclical action, which has actually happened for the first time, even in countries that have been traditionally very cautious, or I would say over-cautious, or too orthodox. Take the case of, for example, Germany, which has expanded very significantly its fiscal spending and then has helped to fund, maintain jobs and avoid bankruptcies. So I think that counter-cyclical role is extremely important and valuable because it reinforces monetary, fiscal, regulatory counter-cyclical role. I would say it's like a, a fourth segment, if you like, of a of a Keynesian response. And when you do it through development banks, sort of Keynesianism sandir without saying it, which was what they did after the Eurozone debt crisis. But it wasn't sufficient. They expanded the EIB through the Juncker plan and its role, which was good. But they didn't expand the fiscal policy. I think what has been very valuable now is that governments have expanded both. But I agree with you that the European Commission, it would be great if it expanded further its role because... It has a fairly limited budget. It's always around 1% of the EU GDP. And we need, I think, more firepower, particularly to face these big crises like COVID and the climate emergency. I take another important policy recommendation to use fiscal policies in the, to a completely different level to couple um, investment. And maybe on these, uh, both on the investment and the fiscal response, I would like to take advantage of your more global view on economic policy 
so looking a little bit beyond Europe, maybe at the US or other examples that can may come to your mind of big debates around the recovery investment or uh, developments that you can see uh, for promotional banks. Where do we stand in Europe compared to other countries? Well, I think Europe has made a good start because, for example, the European Investment Bank is, is admired, and KFW and others are admired all over the world. And it's very interesting that now in the U.S. there is an important debate about the creation of a major investment, public investment bank. Uh, and the EIB is very much the model. In fact, President Obama invited the whole board and president of the EIB to come to Washington. Unfortunately, he didn't have the support in Congress to pass such a bank. But now, much more seriously, under the Biden administration, there is, in fact, not just one proposal, but two different proposals. One talks about a green bank, purely focused, mainly focused on green, but also on investing, particularly in the poorer communities and helping very small companies or, or poorer groups of people, minorities and so on, is one possibility. And then there's another proposal of a, a broad KFW-like or EIB-like major investment bank. And one of the things that they are learning from the Europeans in some ways, and it's part, I think, of the Biden philosophy, is a way of thinking, is that they're thinking big. So they're thinking, I think, initially about a capital of about $100 billion, which would be not as much, but almost as much as European standards. And there's also... We talked at this big conference we had in Summit on Development Banks late last year. We talked about a renaissance of development banks because in the time of peak of neoliberalism of the so-called Washington Consensus, public action, whether it was direct public investment or uh, through public promotional banks, was you know regarded rather negatively because it was always assumed that governments were worse less effective than the private sector. But now in practice, even quite conservative governments like the Indian Modi government uh, has realized, because they privatized all, practically all the promotional banks, that they don't have sources of finance for long-term infrastructure and that they, it's crucial for the developers. So they are now creating this year quite a large new promotional infrastructure bank. And so it's almost going into the mainstream, both politically and economically, which I think is very interesting. Definitely interesting. And um, please allow me to ask you one last question exactly on, on the things that you have just mentioned. Somehow there is appetite now because of the pandemic for uh, public intervention through investment as well as many other actions are required at a different level of governments from the management of the emergency to the management of the transformation and the recovery. Is it more problematic to you, the risk that current public administrations are unable to deliver? So somehow did they fail? Do you see this risk so that we vanify, we lose the opportunity to provide the public and the people with an effective public sector? Or that this is just a temporary wave that even if the public sector responds diligently, we will go back to, you know, minimize government in two years? I think that's a very interesting question uh, from a progressive point of view. I would add a third risk, which uh, I've been worrying about, which is that, yes, you will support 
public action, for example, these public promotional banks, but do it in a way that will cap that will allow them to a certain extent, perhaps excessively, to be captured by private interest. So, for example, the World Bank talks about de-risking, using billions to mobilize trillions. And for that, they say, you need to de-risk private investment completely. But what they don't realize is that you don't really de-risk, but you transfer risk from the private to the public sector. And so one of the risks, which actually relates strongly to your first point, is that the, the promotional banks, for example, take too much risk, and then when things go bad, they would take the losses. And in the good times, the private sector takes the profits. What Robert Reich once called capitalism on the upside and socialism on the downside, you know, uh, taking over the losses. I believe that that is something that you really have to guard against uh, of course, provide incentives for the private sector, work with the private sector, but particularly in the case of the private financial sector, not overdo it and also share not just the risks and potential losses, but also share the upside. So, for example, the IB has developed an instrument called Venture Debt, where, if, of course, if you make a loan and the company does badly, the bank doesn't get paid. But if the bank, if the project does very well, something like biotech, which is probably going to make a lot of money, you could transform the loan into equity. And therefore, uh, the, the, in this case, the European Investment Bank or the promotional bank, or more generally the government, would share also in the profits. So that it should be construed in a way that is fair, because in the end, it's our resources, it's public resources, taxpayers' money. So we don't want to just enrich bankers. That's not our mission. But the mission is, of course, to maximize the impact on sustainable and just development. But it's also a big challenge for the public sector, as you rightly say, and the, and the promotional banks to do good, you know, to, to not waste money, to have good governance. And in that sense, uh, I think, for example, oversight by parliaments, both the European parliament, but national parliaments, is, is very crucial. The voice of civil society is valuable. And I think it's important that that has been expanding. Dear Professor Griffith Johns, this was very interesting. Uh, thank you a lot for taking the time to speak with us and engage with all the audience of the FAPS talks. I have to remind our listeners that if they want to dig a little bit more in the topics that we touched today, they can find on FAPS and actually IPD website the policy study by Professors Griffith Johns and Marco Carreras on the role of the EIB in the green transformation. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much. Excellent questions. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And I uh, hope to see you soon uh, in one of our FEPS uh, meetings. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPS Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.